Welcome to another episode of the Staying Free podcast. In this episode, I talk with Yuri Bezmanov's ghost, who, if you're on Twitter and you're part of the kind of freedom community, then you're probably going to know who this is. He goes by a pseudonym, so I had no idea what to expect before talking to him. But we just had a wide-ranging, open conversation. As with a lot of my conversations, I don't really script this. We just kind of go into it and see where the conversation takes us. But Yuri was a great guest and brought a lot of perspective and also a kind of stoic approach to some of the topics that we were discussing, which is always great. So I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do and you want to give it a share on Twitter, that would be hugely appreciated. And if you're enjoying the podcast, then please give it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're using. All right, on to the episode. I'm in an interesting position because I sort of effectively work for the government. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so I work for um, a government department. And, and I suppose the, uh, I mean, the interest, the whole area for me that is just um, kind of as, as what, as, you know, to coin a phrase, triggered me since the first lockdown on the 23rd of March 2020 is that, I mean, I, you know, I've just never accepted that any government should have. You know the the authority to in in um, institute the sort of restrictions and controls that they did, without frankly people rioting in the streets. <laughs> Just my, that's kind of my take on it. Is that like the whole premise of lockdowns and you know social distancing and all that crap? Frankly, I never. Just I just don't accept it as legitimate. You know, almost in in any circumstances, actually. And, um, and it's been quite interesting for me. It's been quite an interesting journey because I've spent the last couple of years and I'm quite open about it in work. I don't, I don't hide it. I, from day one, I've said, well, this is all bollocks, frankly. And, um, and I've managed to kind of, you know, steer a path of not getting fired, <laughs> which has been quite interesting. Okay. Um, but it, and then I, 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 I interact a lot with local authorities and local government. And, um, you know, I suppose my, my particular concern is I think we need root and branch reform of democracy in its entirety in this country. Um, you know, the entire institutions of local government and, and central government have just become monsters, frankly. They're they're out of control. And uh, sort of what I don't have is a, is a, a design of what it should look like, you know, to, to kind of bring some sort of semblance of like accountability back into public life. But um, I do think that it's entirely necessary. So, um, Let, let's start there then. So, is that an opinion you've always held, or is that something which um, it, it is only off the back of everything that happened in twenty twenty? Uh, no, I think it, it, I, I've definitely not always held it. I think you know, the, the, I mean, I'm I'm in my fifties, so you know, the, I've I've lived through you know a multitude of governments and sort of changes in government, and um, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember sort of local district councils when I was probably a kid and sort of a teenager where they seemed quite useful. You know, they used to get stuff done and, and you, you could have positive interactions. And, um, you know, certainly I think I grew up in, you know, sort of council housing in a council estate and, you know, the, the council as it was then, it wasn't a social landlord. You, you were dealing directly with the council and by and large, actually, they provided a pretty good service, you know. Uh, they they got they concentrated on all the basics and, and didn't get wrapped up in a multitude of you know political agendas, which is what they now do. Every single you know contemporary agenda that comes along, 
they they create a task force and allocate resources to it. Meanwhile, people are really interested in like getting the bins emptied and fixing the potholes in the roads and stuff like that. And uh, now the big one now, I mean, is 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 farcical really in my mind is that pretty much every local council now in the UK has declared a climate emergency. Okay. And um, I just kind of think like, you know, like the ability of local authorities to have any significant impact on, you know, the so-called climate emergency is, is just farcical really. You know, they tinker at the edges and they'll do stuff like they'll put a few solar panels in and they'll try and reduce their sort of carbon emissions and that's all laudable but the idea that you know they're going to do that to an extent where you'll mitigate you know all the carbon outputs by 2030 is is just a fantasy really and um, but you're not allowed to say that <laughs> no, mm-hmm. nobody will stand up and say this is nuts you know and, and and i'm a great don't get me wrong i'm an environmentalist i i'm absolutely on board with you know reducing emissions particularly the, my, my thing is like we, you know, we need to focus a lot less on carbon and a lot more on environmental damage. Yeah. You know, there's lots of things we could do, practical things that would make an enormous impact to the environment, um, much more than worrying about a f- few fractions of a percentage in carbon. Um, but those quite often are slightly, you know, they're sort of harder and more tangible things. So actually, if you chase after these sort of like mythical almost impossible targets as long as you're looking like you're doing the right thing everyone kind of you know feels quite good about it and um you know and the amount of resources that's going to get done in the next 10 years the amount of resource that will get diverted into you know following these agendas is going to be absolutely horrific and most of it will have almost zero impact yeah i mean the thing about the um the environmental stuff as well is that most of the solutions which are actually you can do on an individual level are not really promoted that much. And the ones that are promoted as the things we need to do, it's all, okay, well, a government needs to do it. You know, a government needs to have a carbon target. You know, we need to tax this and tax that. Whereas actually just everyday things that people could be doing. I mean, one of the things that that I think will be really important is, you know, if we're we're concerned about emissions, like we should have kind of um, be teaching in schools maybe, or have kind of government campaigns to get people to like grow their own food in their in their garden or something like this, you know, to stop yeah. all of that transportation, you know, grow locally, you know, eat stuff mm-hmm. that's in season. But these things ultimately, they don't require a tax, they don't require big government. So they're just kind of yeah. sidelined, yeah. you know, they're never talked about. And, you know, it seems quite evident to me as well that governments, they, they don't really put much effort into anything that will enable the individual to become more self-sovereign. You know, things like growing your own food, it's like, oh, we can't talk about Absolutely. that because, you know, no. you know they, they, will, they will lose dependent on these big, um, you know, centralized institutions. Yeah, no, totally, totally I agree with that. It's, um, I mean, it's quite an interesting being my age because I, you know, sort of have lived through, you know, the pre-internet era and, um, and it seems bizarre, really, because I still consider myself, you know, reasonably young in that sense. But, yeah. you know, when I grew up, you know, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have smartphones and, you know, takeaway food almost didn't exist. You know, the nearest we had, I think, to take away food was a wimpy bar growing up. And, and um, you know, in terms of consumption, you know, even, even things like, you know, like, I mean, I'm a coffee addict and I, you know, drink far too much of the stuff and you know consume enormous amounts of resource on an individual basis with my coffee habit um that actually 30 years ago i would have just been having cups of tea at home or having a coffee out of a flask or something you know yeah and this this goes back to what you were saying before as well when you were talking about um how things used to be much more kind of localized and yeah i guess like 
I know this just from kind of talking to my talking to my grandparents and you know reading about kind of foregone eras like pr probably like not um maybe the boomer generation but probably the generation above that would have been the would have been probably the the, the one which I would allude to as being most evident of this which is you know, yeah, it, yeah. it was it was all about individual. You know, it was all about individual responsibility and doing things on a local level, and even just little things like, um, you know, if there was a problem, if 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 a, a petty crime had been committed, for instance, you know, most of the time it was just yeah. dealt with by a neighbor. You know, it was dealt with by yeah, you know someone yeah. around the corner who would just say, hey, you know, your son's done this, your your daughter's done this, or whatever, exactly. and they get a slap on their wrist. And you know, if even if they were going to involve like the local Bobby or whatever, it would it would have to be a pretty significant crime. You know, I mean, um, you know, yeah. there's there's someone that I know who like actually broke into someone's house and they didn't even call the police it was just like hey you know this person's been thieving um like just uh give them a slap on the wrist and it was all dealt with within the community it wasn't like the you know police were not involved and yeah. this just seems to be i don't know just nowadays it's very different nowadays it's like everything involves the police i mean this became really evident to me during the whole kind of corona debacle which is if people were having like a party for instance in the house you'd have the next door neighbor like calling the police telling them i mean if you really that yeah. concerned about it just go around and knock on the door and say hey knock on the door out. yeah 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 and actually if you're polite if you do that in the right way you'll probably get a reasonable response as well yeah totally you'll, you'll get a reasonable response yeah and now we've everything is just trending towards pushing responsibility whether it's the climate whether it's policing whether it's education whatever it is it's just pushing it all towards these centralized yeah. authorities like everyone has to act under this one rule which is coming from this one entity yeah and I'm, I, the way i've seen it it's sort of over over my sort of life even in my lifetime is that increasingly almost everything is is to an extent being subcontracted to the state so this the individual is is the majority of the population willingly subcontract all of this stuff to the state, you know, rather than taking responsibility at a personal level, you know, so I've had it as a, for instance, you know, um, like some local kids a few weeks ago, I was in my local area and some, some young kids, I don't know, 10, 11 years old or something like that, just dropped a load of litter on the floor, right? you know, like been to the chip shop and just dropped their bag. And I, I just said, Hey, excuse me, you know, you're going to pick that up. And um, and I, I I don't worry about like you know having these sorts of conversations because um, you know I, I actually see it as a as a as a duty of a responsible citizen to sort of you know challenge behaviour like that and um, I mean I, I don't particularly like the phrase but I think it was um, Hillary Clinton wasn't it that used the phrase it takes it takes a village to raise a child and um, oh yeah I haven't heard that one yeah there was um I mean and that's, that's true good. that's good it's true to an extent I can remember. Like growing up, the one thing I, I used to, you know, we used to get up to mischief like most kids do. And um, our big thing was always like, we'd like to, we used to light little fires. You know, I think we were a bunch of, you know, pyromaniacs on the quiet. Um, never, never a dangerous, but we just like little campfires in sort of bits, little bits of woodland and stuff like that. And, um, but I, it always used to make me chuckle because you'd always stop if you saw an adult come in. You could say, well, look, here comes a grown up. And we'd actually kick it over and, you know, put it out sort of thing. Because we we saw all grown ups as being part of that sort of, you know, level of authority that would would, if necessary, take you home to your parents and get you into more trouble when you got confronted by your parents. Yeah. Whereas even that now would be, you know, say if somebody, you know, saw some kids doing that, they they just walk past it and ignore it, and you know they'll tut loudly, or they'll literally, as you say, they'll ring the police and just subcontract it to, um, 
you know, to the sort of state effectively. And I, I've seen it in, in big area. I've seen that happen is, is in the charity sector where, um, you know, so much, I mean, I've, I've been involved in a few charities over the years and, you know, that used to be all very much on done on a local level. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. and, and what you find now is you get these big charities who, you know, look to sort of, they, they almost, they're quite territorial. They want to dominate their particular area. And, um, and therefore, you know, they, they, they spend half their life fundraising and, and people are happier to give money to charities than they are to actually get off their arse and do something themselves. And um, so it's, it's this strange kind of, I suppose it's, it's, an, it's an indication or it's, it's a, a, a reflection of sort of, you know, development in that people have become much wealthier in general, um, probably a lot busier as well because people are flogging their guts out at work. And therefore, you know, they just want to do their own thing in their sort of spare time rather than, um, you know, being an active citizen, as I call it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, and this is the thing, like people wonder why the scope of government has increased so much or why, you know, everything costs so much and you have to pay so much taxes and stuff. And this kind of gets to the root of it. It's because we we have, as you said, like we've we've subcontracted so much to the government. We've just said whatever it is. Um, you know, the, the government will do it, whether that's, you know, okay, I'm not going to confront this, uh, this person for doing something, I'm going to tell the I'm going to tell the police, um, you know, and like you said, even with, with charity and things, it's like, people um, are always talking about um, charity. And that's great if you give to charity, but also, there are charitable acts that you can do in your own community that cost nothing except for your time. Yeah, right. But it's almost yeah. like people just say, well, that can be someone else's job. But then at the same time, we'll complain about it. And, you know, quite often, I find it, it's the same people who are complaining, um, who are saying, oh, you know, all, all the rich people should, should, you know, people who, who own, earn over this much money, et cetera, they should pay really high taxes and, and things because there's poverty. And it's like, well, start at home, you know, start, start um, where you are and say like, what are the things that you can be doing? If you're, if there is pro- poverty around the corner, what are the things that you can do to help that person, right? Um, and, you know, if, if everyone kind of thinks like this more and thinks more on a local level, which I think, obviously having local governance will help that because it will kind of be a catalyst for this yep. kind of social change. Um, then, then you, uh, everything will come down in price a bit because you don't have to have the same level of taxes because the government isn't responsible for everything. I mean, I think in the UK now, the government, the, the actual public sector is more um, than 50% of the economy. I think that it, it breached that um, critical threshold maybe uh, in the past couple of years where public sector spending was more than half the economy. Yeah, I can easily believe that. Yeah, which which is absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, if you'd have said this to someone living, uh, you know, kind of probably only 50 or 60 years ago, I don't even think you'd have to go much further than that. It would have been absolutely outrageous to think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, totally. And and it's, it's like, there's, there's, there's another great quote I remember seeing, or not so much a quote, but sort of um, articles and things about sort of, um, America, sort of pre nineteen hundred, places like Chicago was the one that springs to mind. The, the you know, sort of looking at cities like Chicago, where you know you had roads and buildings and everything being built, and you know hospitals and stuff, and and, and the state effectively didn't exist at that point. Yeah, you know, it was it was just a very minor sort of part of daily life, and yet all these things, and even in the UK, actually, if you think about the UK, you know, the railway network that is predominantly still what we use was all built by private sector funding um you know the canal network the railway network all that stuff you know none of that was built with the state that's all built with private enterprise and um 
you know, yeah, somewhere along the line, we, we've effectively transferred that sort of ownership for one thing, but also even, you know, the development of those sorts of things now is almost entirely driven by the state. Yeah. And it yeah. might have a sort of, you, you have a kind of a front window. The railway industry is a good example where you have, you know, train operating companies and network rail, but, you know, effectively they're all um, state subsidized. And so they, they don't really run as, you know, true private enterprise. So, And this is something that I think has been very um, deliberate as well. I don't think it's an accident. And this is how I kind of break it down to people, especially people who are kind of on the left who think that, you know, big government is is really great because it kind of acts as some kind of counterbalance to corporate power. Well, I, I actually think that it's completely the opposite. And I think that this is demonstrated by what we see in the world, which is that actually this is a deliberate ploy to get power to move over to government because that actually gives the corporations one central entity to lobby. So if you actually have yeah. a big government, that gives the corporations um, you know, one kind of, or maybe it's the EU or, you know, maybe it's the, the American government or maybe it's, you know, whatever it is, but it's, it's a government entity, which is much easier to lobby than to try and lobby, you know, lots of individual people or lots of smaller communities. Right. So yes. it's not, it's not that the government acts as a counterbalance to corporate power when government gets bigger. That is a, a kind of, um, it's a, a, fa- a farcical, or what, what's the word? It's a, it seems it seems logical, but actually, when you see how things operate in the real world, um, those entities just get lobbied, and we've seen this with with COVID, right? We've seen all of these governments get lobbied by big pharma to say you have to mandate our product, um, which is you know that is kind of if you read up on fascism and what fascism actually entails, a lot of yeah. the nature of fascism is actually about governments forcing. Um, essentially working in tandem with corporations to force on the yeah, individual, yeah. the power of the corporation um, is yeah. kind of levied by the government, kind of. So this is kind of what we've what we've seen. And, and this hasn't emerged um, without kind of deliberate thought, in my opinion. It's actually quite sinister. You know, governments have, governments and corporations both want a big centralized government entity with high regulation, et cetera, because then that, they get their rules passed. These people with a lot of money, yeah. They go to one person, they say, we're going to steer society in the direction we want. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, I mean, I've, I've worked for big multinationals and sort of SMEs, so I've, I've got a pretty good perspective on it, I think. And, and you know, all, all big corporations effectively strive to become a monopoly. I mean, that's, that's almost written in their DNA. They literally want to become a monopoly, you know. So, you know, they, they talk, you know, a market share is the sort of acceptable um, – version of that but you know every company in essence wants to achieve 100% market share you know which is you know if you talk about 100% market share people go oh that's you know i don't think people necessarily see that as being the same thing as an actual monopoly but it, it obviously is um and and you know any any corporation you know the shareholders that's exactly what they want so they will do everything that they can to achieve that um and then they, they, as you say, they then all they've got to do is negotiate with government in terms of, you know, what regulation they have to comply with. And largely, when you're that big, you can steer the regulation anyway. So, you know, the, and, you know, when you're dealing with government ministers, I mean, and, and particularly some of the regulatory bodies, I mean, the, the corporations have all the knowledge and all the power, really. You know, so the, ta- the tail is very much wagging the dog in most of those instances. And you see that. I mean, you know, that's that's been the, the big learning thing for me in the last two years with the whole COVID thing. And the, the you know, it's it's quite ironic actually because like up until you know 2019, 
I, I, you know, I understood that um, the, um, you know, pharmaceutical corporations were businesses, but I never realized quite how sort of, um, you know, venal, I suppose, I'm not sure what the word is, but, you know, just, just how utterly like morally bankrupt they are you know, relative to, I, I, I kind of always assumed they had a sort of a, a, an overriding purpose of, you know, um, you know, coming up with medicines and products that to sort of, you know, make people healthier. And the, the, the thing that I, I mean, it's quite ironic actually, because, um, you know, having seen what's been going on, I've probably, you know, done more research on, you know, vaccines and the pharmaceutical industry in general in the last 12 months than in the previous 30 years. Um, and like, I think now if somebody says to me, you know, are you an anti-vaxxer? I'll probably say, well, I didn't used to be, but now I've done some research. I am. Yes. All right. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've heard that. I've heard that a few times. Yeah. You're not the first person to tell me that. I I mean, I I actually think that this is one of the big, I I don't necessarily want to say problems because obviously like that would be claiming to, you know, to, to know the truth about vaccines and this kind of thing. I, like I'm, yeah. I'm someone who hasn't really changed my mind about previous vaccines. At least I haven't been kind of convinced of that. But I, but yeah. I do think that like everything that's happened because we've been told so many lies and they've covered up all the adverse events and things of this one that, that surely they, they must expect that you are going to, um, you are going to cause a lot of kind of anti-vax sentiment generally because a lot of people will be like, well, you've lied about this one. How can I trust the others? And, you know, m- yeah. maybe maybe the answer is you shouldn't trust the others. I'm not obviously claiming um, that you definitely should. In, yeah. in my view, yeah, yeah. I still do at this point. But, yeah, I, I mean, this is going to happen. And I honestly think that if they were to, I think that you're going to see now a decline in, um, you know, MMR and, you know, um, TB and all these other all these other vaccines that people yeah, especially you know, kids at school, etc. I think that yeah. we're going to see a market decline yeah. from here because it, it will it will have probably damaged, I guess, trust in vaccines for probably at least a generation. Whether or not that's a, the right thing to happen, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, that's definitely true in my case. I mean, that the, the last two years has, has shattered my trust in pretty much every single institution that I, I interact with. You know, be it government, the health service, the police. I mean, I've had several you know i would have been absolutely shoulder to shoulder with the police you know two and a half years ago in terms of you know sort of public order and and you know supporting the police and my position has completely changed on that now because of the things i've experienced in the last two years you know at the at the sharp end and i'm you know here am i a middle-aged professional family man who is now you know certainly ambivalent and and borderline actively um sort of you know not supporting the police because of some of the things i've seen up close and personal which is a pretty appalling place to get to really are you referring here to the to the protest by any chance yeah um, you know and and some things i've seen locally as well i i've been involved in a few um not even protests just kind of you know gatherings and you know seeing police like stopping for example um, old ladies from sitting on a park bench, mm-hmm. you know, and you think, God almighty, on what planet are these people thinking, you know, yeah. literally. So, and the, the fact that, and I think if you mix in amongst that, you know, in the middle of all of this, we had the BLM sort of protests as well, where, 
you know, there was sort of evidence of clear two-tier policing going through that. And, um, you know, so, and, and the, the thing that has really shocked me is the willingness of the sort of the, the police to just follow what are clearly, you know, nonsensical kind of restrictions in some cases. Um, and, and I would have expected more police, certainly some of the sort of, maybe not the senior, but the mid-ranking officers to, to come out from time to say, actually, this is bollocks. <laughs> you know, we can't be doing this. As a, you know, we have to distance ourselves from this. As much as we are, you know, sort of sworn to a, an oath to uphold the law, you know, what we're being asked to do isn't actually in the spirit of the law. It might be in the letter, but it clearly isn't within the spirit of the law. Therefore, we should refuse to actually participate. And the fact that they, you know, there's been none of that. There's been literally none of that. That even in the most ridiculous circumstances, you know, where, you know, like you say, somebody's got a couple of friends around and the police come and knock on their door um, because they're having a drink with their mate. It's just bonkers. I just, you know, I don't accept it. Fundamentally don't accept it. So. No, I don't accept it either. But I, I also do think that the police, just like most people, because, you know, we're in a minority, you know, you and I, Yuri, like we we actually don't believe this stuff. But the the, the average person um, does believe it. And I think also the average police officer does. And if anything, I would possibly say that probably more police officers than even average people believe this stuff. So they believe that they're doing it for the greater good, right? And that doesn't mean that it's obviously right. I mean, I completely agree with you. Um, but I, I'm not sure that it's that people actually have a moral um, objection to it, police officers, and that they're just not acting on that. I actually think that they don't morally object to it because they they have bought the whole, you know, they, they bought the whole narrative, hook, like, hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess that's true. And, you know, if, if you have accepted that, you know, all of these restrictions have a... You know, well, first and foremost, I guess if you if you accept that there's this deadly virus that, the, and, and this again, this is I think where there's the, if you're a sovereign individual, you don't buy this stuff because you would always take the view that it's my choice. You know, if I choose to expose myself to risk, that's on me. Yeah. Whereas there's a this kind of collective mindset, which is that you know people have to be looked after because they'll make bad decisions otherwise, and therefore we have to enforce these draconian restrictions. Um, otherwise people will make the wrong choices. Well, you know, in my world, or in my, in my mind, you know, you're perfectly entitled to make bad choices. You know, I get that, you know, if that starts to impact on other people, that, that's a problem. And, and, you know, so, you know, there, but there are, you know, if I, you know, meet with some friends who are all consenting adults that have decided to come and, you know, spend some time together because, but well, I mean, it was bizarre, actually. I mean, I was, I was going to meetings, you know, during the lockdown and it was literally like, we were like the French resistance, you know, going in the back door of darkened houses. And we were just laughing about it. We're saying like, what the fuck? This is like, you know, this is not 1940s France, occupied France. This is bloody sort of sleepy Gloucestershire, you know, in the middle of like what's supposed to be a civilized democracy. What is going on? Yeah, and um, yeah. and, the, the, and you're right though, because the weirdest thing is there would have been plenty of people, and you know, without doubt, the majority would have would have quite happily seen us arrested for the for the mere act of gathering, you know, illicitly as it supposedly was at the time. I've kind of mentioned this in a couple of my previous conversations, but 
I, I don't know whether you feel the same here, but you know, whenever I looked back at history and I wondered, you know, how how did kind of Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia or whatever, how did it how did it get to that point? How did it get so bad? You know, Maoist China, some of the you know these these um, periods yeah, yeah. of history that we hear about. And um, that question was answered for me in 2020. I was just like, okay, yeah, now yeah, I yeah, see yeah. it. You know, it like I, I was just like, oh, just it's just propaganda, and which is exactly the story we were told, right? Like when you read about these things, it's like, well, yeah, everyone's really propagandized, and you're like, really, but but how? You know, like how? And then uh, 2020 came along, and I was like, ah, that's how. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I've, I've, I will never ever, I don't think, understand. You know, because I. I mean, the advantage I've got, I suppose, I, I, my background is sort of engineering, and um, I, you know, I've, I've spent a lot, a lot of time handling, you know, big volumes of data and analysing data, you know, statistical data and stuff like that. So I'm pretty good at stats and you know doing analysis and stuff like that. Very early on, I was looking at some of the stats and the graphs that they were showing, and I'm screaming at the telly basically saying, "Well, that's complete bollocks," yeah. you know. They're, Misrep. It was very obvious early on they were misrepresenting data, and I'd still like to know why that was. And I think as as much as I try not to be, you know, go down the conspiracy theory sort of rabbit hole, there you have to ask that question: Why were they so blatantly misrepresenting data? You know, so what was the agenda? Because there clearly was an agenda. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's what makes it impossible not to go down that rabbit hole, though, right? Because yeah. when you, yeah. you know, once you've got a smoking gun, it's natural to just say, okay, well, you know, what's the reason behind this? And obviously, various people have different reasons. But the the, the one that the only one that I can't get on board with is, is the idea that it's just a cock up, because it's like, you don't misrepresent, like a cock up is that maybe there's some things, you know, that go in one direction, maybe some things go in the other direction. But when yeah, yeah, categorically, yeah. it's always on one side that you always make it seem like we're in, you know, this deadliest pandemic, you know, arguably since um, whatever, there's the Spanish flu or whatever, but just yeah, that everyone's yeah, dying yeah. on the streets. And it, it just it just wasn't true, right? Like, um, you know, they, no, that's right. said, they, they, they misrepresented it always in one direction. And, and that is a, yeah. that's a massive red flag. Yeah, and 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 for me, that's the big unanswered question still, really. Um, and um, you know, the, the the I don't know. I mean, the, um, the the sort of there's so many overlapping agendas. I think I, I I'm at the point where I can believe that it's all about that. You know, there isn't this one. I mean, that you know, the World Economic Forum and all the the heavily invested players in that clearly have huge influence you know, on everything on the, you know, on the banking system, on the economy, on, on international trade. So the idea that they're not involved in this in some respect is, is just naive in the extreme, really. Um, and then you throw into the mix, the sort of, you know, I mean, the, the great irony of politics really is that, you know, the people who, who would be best placed to run most things aren't interested in politics and therefore don't get involved in it. You know, the, People that gravitate towards politics tend to be the people who, you know, want to control things and design the world in their own in their own sort of image. And so, you know, it's not a surprise that you've got the sort of, you know, the statists gravitating to all these institutions to try and, you know, the, the idea of, you know, this it, it's well documented that there are plenty of people, certainly in you know the last 150, 200 years, who had designs on sort of one world government and, you know global socialism or Marxism or whatever you want to call it. And uh, so 
you know, it shouldn't be a surprise that there are people actively trying to make it happen. Um, So, yeah, whether or not that was the driving force behind some of this stuff, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence on that one still. Well, I mean, the, you know, the people who are purveyors of big government, they love a crisis, don't they? I mean, they because a crisis necessitates them. And kind of going yeah. back to what we were saying before, this is it's almost like everything when it comes to um, the world at the moment is, or not, not at the moment, I guess this has kind of been historically true, but it's just been this this trend, especially recently, where it's kind of gone, gone into overdrive, which is to yeah. increase the necessity for government in every way. It's like, you know, people can't be, you know, obviously we're talking here about you know a, a pandemic and that oh well we need a government response to this to, to save people's lives whether it's global warming and we need a government response to keep carbon below x degrees whatever or or even on the the more local community level as we were saying before um you know like people encouraging people to you know dob in their neighbors and stuff uh, rather than you know just go and have a conversation with them you know schooling it's like you know just whatever it is yeah, yeah. it's all just just try to channel um, everything towards um, a necessity for big government, and um, like we're—it's just going into kind of an exponential curve right now. And I don't know where the brakes are on this because most people actually um, are on board with this. You know, they're on board with the idea that we've had this catastrophic pandemic that the government have to take away, you know, everyone's freedoms and lock everyone in their homes and force vaccines on people. Or you know, others believe that the only way that we are going to escape, um, you know, global climate meltdown is by having, you know, governments, um, you know, force all of these, you know, do carbon taxes and kind of force um, people to to use kind of greener energy, etc. Um, and it just seems to me that, uh, I, yeah, I don't know where the brakes are on this thing, but it's, it's kind of like so many people are in this ideology. And I yeah. do think a lot of people have maybe left it off the back of the, the COVID thing. I think a lot of people who maybe were really on board with kind of global governance have kind of been a bit red pill through this process. But I still think that the average person, especially in the West, you know, maybe this isn't true in the developing yeah. world, but in the West is kind of on board with all this stuff. You know, they might not outwardly say, I support the WEF and all of these kind of globalist institutions. But if you were to look at what they actually want to bring about, I think most people will probably support them. So, I, you know, it's uh, it's kind of worrying. Yeah, I, 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 I... I agree, and I think that's one of the things I was going to be. I was interested to sort of just have a bit of a conversation about. Is like, you know, I think we we can analyse to death how the hell we got here, but I'm more interested in like, what the bloody hell do we do now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us, tell us what we do, Yuri. <laughs> well, I was hoping you'd be able to help me with that. I think um, that's that's the bit that I find the sort of the terrifying thing. Really, is like when you you think. How on earth do you actually unwind some of this stuff? And you know, I think, I, I, you know, I mean, I think you just have to start like with localism. I, I do think that I think to an extent, but you know, there's there's probably a, a limit. You know, that will go so far. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, you can, you know, do you still play that? I mean, I, I've sort of got quite heavily involved in the Freedom Alliance and. You know, I've I've looked at all the sort of emerging sort of, you know, more libertarian sort of parties that have, you know, reclaim and reform. And it's an absolute bloody mess, frankly. You've got all these kind of minority parties all fighting for the same, you know, small chunk of the electorate. And we're just all going to annihilate each other in, in the process. Um, you know, is, is, is there even any point playing the political game? 
um, is, is the sort of one of the questions, you know, I mean, is it literally the only way, you know, is armed insurrection the only way out of this? And um, if that's the case, then we really are screwed because that, that ain't going to go very far. So, um, What is the Freedom Alliance? It's um, a political party that was set up um, last year. Oh, I, I've not heard of it. Yeah, it's worth, I mean, they, they're obviously very new, but it's a, it's a genuine unlike all of the other ones it's a genuine grassroots party okay it was literally started by a half a dozen people that were just so utterly sick of what was going on and so horrified at what was going on they were literally you know driven to actually set up a party to try and do something about it and um yeah i'll drop the link into their website into the um chat but cool yeah i'll put it in the show notes yeah, so they um, they're pretty green, and and you know they're sort of struggling to put together a manifesto, um, you know. But and I think they're already finding that you know you can't please everybody. It's a bit like and if you've ever seen any of the Monty Python film, The Life of Brian, it's the the popular people's front of Palestine versus the people's popular front of Palestine, and you've got all these small groups kind of. <coughs> jostling for position um but um the one thing i will say is that because i've i've you know i've been active in politics previously and um, i've always been reasonably active in politics sort of locally <clears throat> um unlike most of the other ones that you know that they are a genuine grassroots membership-led party and i mean the bit they're struggling with at the moment is establishing you know the sort of structure and the governance in terms of how you grow from, you know, just a very small sort of protest group into a, you know, a potentially a, a political party that can fight elections. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, that's, that's a hell of a leap, frankly. Do you think that you'll be, you'll run if, if the party really takes off? Uh, yeah, I will. Yeah, I, I definitely will. The next elections where I live will be 2024. So that, my plan will be to stand as a candidate at that point. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess that that's what we need to see more of. Yeah, I, because I, I, I'm very much of the view that you, you know, even if you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly cynical about politics now. In that, um, the big thing with politics is that you get a vote, but you don't get to select the candidates, and so, you know, you are basically given a very limited choice of candidates. And I think one of the things that I've found over the last few years <clears throat> is that. I almost feel like, and this is a terribly cynical view, but I almost feel like almost every member of parliament to be a member of parliament is selected on their ability to be compromised so that if they actually get elected, you know, they get a, a, a quiet knock on the door from, from, you know, dark forces or whatever you want to call it. And, and, you know, you look at the way they behave in Parliament, you know, compared to the promises they make, you know, on the way in. And you think, what happened to these people? At some point, they've been so horrifically compromised in some way that, you know, they they can almost be persuaded to do anything um, once they're in government. And uh, so I don't know. So, yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so I've just dropped that the link in there so you can have a look at that in the chat if you can see that. Yeah, so I'm just looking at the um, description on the website of this Freedom Alliance uh, website, and it says, we believe in protecting and preserving the absolute rights of people to leave home whenever they choose, make a living and operate business premises, freely associate, 
assemble and peacefully protest. Speak freely without censorship or penalty. Make their own medical choices without coercion and penalties. This seems like just a laundry list of stuff that was just completely normal before 2020. Yeah, yeah. I know, it's, it's absolutely staggering. And they are probably considered, you know, extreme. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. yeah, no doubt that, no doubt we'll hear how extreme they are. Uh, they've already, I mean, they've already been, um, um, I've seen some press where people have accused them of being anti-Semitic, of being right-wing, you know, and it's utter nonsense. I mean, actually, it's an incredibly diverse, you know, group. I I went to, to a meeting a few weeks ago and, um, you know, genuinely diverse, both ethnically and from a background and sort of political perspective point of view. So, um it's, it's, it's extraordinary, really, yeah. So I, I do think there has to be, you've got to have a political kind of arm of whatever you do. I mean, you know, if you're going to try and create a new society or at least a, a, a much better version of what we've got, you, you're going to have to go through the sort of political side of things. And I think, you, you know, what we do need at the same time is a lot more local activism. Um, and even, but I just, I'm, I'm incredibly pessimistic, frankly, because... You know the levels of apathy um, that you see, and I mean, I, it's quite funny. I, you know, obviously, sort of, my wife's a lot less um, active than I am, but she kind of, you know, tolerates a lot of the things I get up to. Yeah, and she reminds me from time to time. You know, I, I said eighteen months ago, I think, you know, in the first lockdown, I said, if they don't lift this lockdown in two weeks, there'll be riots in the streets. Because that's kind right. of how I was feeling, and actually, you know, literally six months later, there's nobody rioting in the streets, and you know, nobody even seems that fussed about it. And I, I was, I mean, I like most people, I suspect I've fallen out with a number of you know people that I considered friends um, because they couldn't, they literally couldn't understand any of my objections to what was going on. It was bizarre, honestly. I mean. Uh, you know, and I'd, I'd have conversations with friends when I'd say, um, oh, you know, do you want to come around for a beer or something? This would have been like, not necessarily in lockdown, but when we were under sort of the, some of the, you know, restrictions about bubbles and all that crap. And yeah. um, and I'd just invite them around and say, do you want to come around for a beer? And they'd say, well, no, you know, we're not allowed. And I said, well, what do you mean you're not allowed? Yes, you are. Do you, you know, if you, if you want to come, come. I'm not saying you can't come. And it's like, and I just remember being staggered that like, you know, grown men, would literally say that they weren't allowed because the government had told them not to. And I, I just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, it, you know, there's, if, if you're willing to allow the government to say whether you can or cannot leave your house and, you know, some of these, some of these really basic things, it's like, what, yeah. what will you not do for your government? Is there anything that yeah. they can possibly ask yeah. of you that you yeah, won't yeah. do? Because you know, this is the thing, like when you just blindly trust an authority or you blindly just say, um, you know, whatever they say, I'm going to do it because they're the government. And of course, that, that must be the right thing to do. That's just such dangerous thinking. And, um, you know, I, I feel like we've had a, we've not, we don't get tested on it that much. You know, we don't get tested on it necessarily every day. But that 2019 was a huge test of that. And I think that most people failed miserably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's why I am, you know, quite pessimistic in some respects, and, and I'm an optimist, you know, by nature. But, you know, even, you know, the whole things with the, you know, the the vaccine now, and you think like, 
there's enough evidence now. I was looking at some slides today, actually, somebody posted on, on um, Twitter um, showing if you're triple boosted or, you know, double jabbed and boosted. I mean, I don't know what the difference is between a booster and the first two. It's all the same, frankly, but, yeah. you know, the, the, there's almost universally negative efficacy on the vaccines, you know, and then in the same breath, you'll get somebody on the radio, like from the local health authority saying like, still, still advertising, you know, get boosted and, you know, get your next booster. So that'll be your fourth dose when, you know, there's, and this is ONS data. This isn't like, you know, some wacky conspiracy. This is literally ONS data being released in the public domain that shows negative efficacy for, and certainly anybody under 60, the third dose is a waste of time effectively. And I think, yeah. I don't quite understand how we've ended up with this position where you've got, you know, significant numbers of medical professionals who are very happy to sort of, you know, promote the vaccine and the benefits of the vaccine when actually the evidence, ironically, when everyone talks about evidence-based policy, the evidence is in the public domain that says it's actually having almost zero impact. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I saw an article the other day. Uh, I don't know who it was. It might have been the Telegraph or something. And they said, you know, with COVID, uh, rec uh, with COVID cases at record levels, um, we ask why are people refusing the the booster? And I was like, literally, the first half of that headline explains the second half of the headline. Uh, you don't need an article <laughs> about that. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 and the, and the, 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 thing, the interesting thing as well is that, like, actually, you know even the language is so lazy, like, you know, they haven't got COVID. They've tested positive for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, you know, so actually most of those people haven't developed COVID, you know, the, yeah. the people who develop COVID are the ones who end up in hospital. And Yeah, so, and then, you know, and, and, and you will know about that th through your personal experience. You know, this is yeah. the thing. I mean, I just think that if you took the media away, and I think that most people, really, they understand this. Maybe they've not said it explicitly, but I think most people... They, 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 they sense this, that if the media had not have been pushing this thing, um, you know, every single day and telling you, you know, how afraid you should be and how many people are dying and how many people are in hospital, et cetera. Like, I just don't think that, that most people would know they were in a pandemic. And, you know, th there is a historical precedent for this because we had like the Hong Kong flu, which was, um, you know, when you were just for kind of population stuff. Um, it was it was about probably about as bad as as what we've had with COVID. It might have even been slightly worse. I'm not I'm not saying that yeah, for sure yeah, because I need yeah, to, to review yeah. the figures. The, the problem, by the way, just as an aside, is that with the COVID figures, rather than doing it per year as we normally do for respiratory illnesses and say how many people died in a year, they've just kept the figures rolling for about three years, yeah, or rolling, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So 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 it's completely yeah. impossible to actually ascertain because it's another. Um, and that, you know, and that's that, that's where when you come back to this issue of misrepresentation of data, don't you? In that, like you know, they they are clearly misrepresenting data deliberately. So why? Yeah. Why is that happening? And, exactly. Um, and, but, but despite, you know, even despite that, at that time during the, the Hong Kong flu pandemic, um, you know, you had festivals going on. There was no interna international uh, travel, no international yeah, travel that yeah. was disrupted, etc. Like they basically just got on. So it's not like when we, it's not like when we talk about what would happen if the media was not um, talking about this every day. It's not like some kind of just inte intellectual exercise. We have a historical precedent, and life basically went on as normal. Yeah, 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 and I, and I think that that's the bit again. You know. It, it's impossible not to sort of go down quite a dark rabbit hole. And 
I mean, I do believe there's a massive overlap with the, um, you know, UN Agenda 2030, the whole zero carbon thing, because, you know, the, the, the lockdowns were a great excuse for, you know, if you look at what's happened to travel, you know, the sort of the whole restrictive nature of travel and, you know, and, and I mean, I will say, <laughs> ironically, it's not all been bad. I mean, the one positive has been the the massive and rapid acceleration in, um, you know, home working and sort of remote working. I agree. Pretty much everybody I know, you know, in, you know, most of the people I know tend to work in sort of, you know, um, professional sort of capacities in sort of office based and every single one of them, you won't, I think other than the odd one or two that just misses the sort of the social content, but I would say upwards of 95% of the people I know, you know, are enjoying the, the changes in terms of, you know, not commuting, um, you know, remote working. And even we were talking about it today in the office, um, you know, at least 50% of the meetings now that we have, we will choose to use Zoom or Teams rather than do it in person. Because, you know, if you need to go to a, a one hour meeting that's an hour's drive away, that's half your day wasted for the sake of, you know, whereas, and, and actually, I, I would guess, you know, for most people, they're working less hours in reality. They're producing yeah. the same output, but probably working 20% less hours. And you'll get lots of people who will deny that and say, no, I'm working more because I'm, and I frankly don't believe it. <laughs> I think they're just trying yeah. to try to make excuses because most people will, you know, because you're not traveling and you're not, I mean, it's noticeable when I'm in the office, how much time you waste just chatting. Well, the other aspect of this is that when so many people are working remote, I think that something that they hadn't, when I say they, I'm talking here about, you know, the people who've really pushed this whole agenda. Um, something that I think they haven't factored into their calculations is how many people are able to move away now from their nation state. So you've, you know, I've yeah. met a lot of people out here in Mexico and I'm one of them um, who, yeah, you know, yeah. because they're now working remotely and they have the option to leave, they've left countries that have had lockdowns and, and vax mandates and stuff. You know, the amount of Canadians, for instance, who were just like, well, you know, I, I work remotely and in my own country, I can't right. do anything because they have uh, vaccine passports and, and all the rest of it. They, they've come to Mexico. Yeah. Even a lot of people from the blue states in, in um, America, you know, I expected, well, will they go to Florida? Will they go to Texas? A lot of them are here. A lot of them are in Mexico. Well, that's interesting. And they wouldn't have necessarily been able to. I'd say that most of them weren't remote before all this kicked off and now they're remote. So, now, you know, the, the whole remote working thing has kind of kicked off this geopolitical aspect where people are able to go where they're treated best, essentially. And um, yeah. that is, that's going to be another factor because now um, you've got um, countries and obviously this really started towards the beginning of the year. You've got countries that are almost competing to remove their mandates. And I'm not sure that would have happened if so many people hadn't been made remote who could just say, okay, well, I'm going to pack up and leave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I, I do think that's, um, you know, for those of us that are in that position, it, it is a, it's a big win. There's no doubt about it. It's a big win. But I, equally, I would say that it came at too high a cost. That's the issue for me. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, if I could turn it, it's been great for me personally, uh, you know, but if I could, if I could turn it back and uh, have it go the other way, then I would. In terms of your situation, was it the whole, you know, was that, is that why you're in Mexico? Was something that you were contemplating or were you looking at doing it anyway and it just accelerated your decision? 
Yeah, I would say it accelerated it. I mean, Mexico wasn't really the place that was highest on my kind of hit list. Um, I was actually going to go to Canada. That was where I had in mind for where I was going to go. And then... Uh, Funny, yeah, I only went there about 10 years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, 10 years ago, it was probably okay. But now, I mean, God, I, I mean, I can't believe what I've seen out of that country. So yeah, Canada was um, the place I was going to head. And then in the end, I was like, well, okay, I'm not going to go to Canada. I, I still can't go into Canada now because I'm unvaccinated. So um you know Same. mexico yeah. was the most free country at the time and you know i was i was ready to leave so i said okay i'll go to mexico and then uh yeah really love the country so um i mean it, it's funny because now i would say mexico ha- is carrying on the corona debacle longer than the uk is because over here right. um you know they're still wearing like most places they're still wearing masks especially in the cities in the major cities like um you know probably the the, the really big ones there where most people are wearing masks outside i would say probably 70 to 80 percent at least are wearing masks outside so there's still a lot of that over here but for some reason there's this weird dichotomy whereby you know they've never had a test to enter the country they've never had vaccine uh, mandates to enter the country i think a couple of states tried them and gave up on them very quickly um but overall it's been very free on this kind of federal level but on a community level People are really subscribed to this COVID religion. It's quite strange. Um, yeah, I, I, what's the situation like in the UK now? Because I haven't been there since uh, December. So, it's sort of remarkably good, actually. I mean, that's the thing that's quite interesting. I mean, and I've said about my other half, you know, because I, I was very pessimistic about a lot of this stuff a year ago, and um, the fact that so much of it has been lifted. I mean, you know, the sort of um, you know vaccine passports of just completely gone off the agenda, it seems. I mean, I'm sure they'll potentially come back in some shape or form as a digital ID, which is still bubbling under the surface. But, um, you know, I mean, the only people wearing masks now are the people who are choosing to do so. There's no requirement to wear masks anywhere now. So, um, and I mean, you know, I I travelled up to London on the train a couple of weeks ago and, you know, there were probably less than 5% of the people on the train wearing masks and it was packed as well. Um, so, you know, the, they, they dropped all the, the mask mandates a couple of months or so back, a couple of months ago. And um, it was quite bizarre because, you know, you get these kind of screeching like lunatics, I, I call them really, and particularly on social media. <laughs> so I take it with a pinch of salt because it doesn't really reflect society as a whole. I appreciate that. But, you know, people going on about like, you know, we're st- still in the middle of a deadly pandemic, you know, COVID's not over. And I'm like, well, for those of us that never wore a mask from day one that have managed to survive the whole thing <laughs> unscathed, <laughs> I said, I'm not sure where they, you know, what your point is really. Um, and uh, so, yeah. You know, there so there, there, there is one like- downside to this though. There is one downside to the fact that now yeah. the restrictions have all been taken is that you can't tell who, you can't tell the people who stood against it. It's almost like everyone, it's, it's almost like we we could spot the other kind of, you know, people who valued freedom and who hadn't kind of like lost their their minds to the, to the fear campaign. You could kind of spot them yeah. a bit easier before. And now yeah. it's almost like, and the funny thing is like a lot of people, they're claiming that they they never supported lockdowns. Everyone everyone now was an anti-lockdowner. It's oh, like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I remember when I was on. in the middle of Trafalgar Square and there was about a thousand people protesting with bloody Piers Corbyn 
protesting the lockdowns. I was like, where were all of these other supposed, you know, 70 million British people who now are all, were all anti-lockdowners, et cetera. Like, where were they? You know, like everyone is trying to kind of revise history of supporting this stuff because, and you know, the honest thing to do would just to be, be to say, look, I was duped. I believed this thing. I did what I thought was best. Um, but I, I was wrong. But and, and I would I would appreciate that. But it's my problem is with people who they claim they never supported it, even though they clearly went along with it. They yeah. they, they put yeah, on yeah. the mask, they stayed at home, they locked down, they supported it, they virtue signaled. And it's like, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't be the virtue signal yeah, back exactly, then and then yeah. be be the virtue signal and now that you realize that you were conned, right? Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally on the same page as that. I mean, there there, there are people that I will never forgive, you know, for, for the behavior sort of you know certainly in the first you know year of this whole thing um you know people that i mean you know it never quite happened to me but i think there were people that were probably very close to sort of you know ringing the police or something and you know when i was like when they brought the first you know ruling i think we were only in theory allowed to be out for an hour a day i think i'm like yeah you can go fuck yourself you know <laughs> like like, honestly, I just remember thinking, like, does any is anybody actually taking this seriously? And then you look around, and like, oh, actually, ninety percent of the country is taking it seriously. Oh, okay, maybe it's just me then. Well, I, I called that house arrest when that all happened. I said we were under house yeah, arrest, me, and everyone, every, and everyone yeah. was saying, everyone say, oh, don't be so, you know, dramatic. And I was saying, well, what is the difference? Like, house arrest is literally where you have to stay in your house, aside from maybe an hour a day of exercise. I was like, aside from having a tag on your foot, it's literally exactly the exact same. Like, they can't tag everyone in the country, but either the rule is the same. If you go out, you can get arrested by the police. Like, yeah. It, yeah. you know, it was house arrest. <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 I experienced that, you know, at close hand. I went to an event um, in Stroud um, in, would have been November 2020. And, um, you know, we were out in a nice park walking around with a few friends, effectively, um, being harassed by the police. <laughs> and I'm Ooh, like, OK, tell, tell us about that. Well, it was it was an event in, in Stroud. So um, and I really went just to sort of have a look, see what was going on. So it was organized by a sort of a local anti-lockdown group. But it was out in a park. It was literally outside in a park in the open air. And um, there were only about, I don't know, 100 and. 20, 130 people there. And I would say two thirds of those were sort of middle-aged, you know, housewives. Um, mm -hmm. And there must've been at least 50 police, you know, there policing that, that group of people and hassling people, you know, when they were kind of getting too close, you know, saying, you know, and just trying to keep people moving and they ended up arresting the, the people who organized it. Um, you know, quite aggressive sort of policing. I was just horrified, absolutely horrified. That was yeah. that was my real red red pill moment. That was because I'm I'm thinking you know this isn't some aggressive like anarchist sort of you know anti capitalist group. You know this is literally a load of middle aged housewives. You know just worried about civil liberties for their families and their kids. And the police were you know being unbelievably abrasive in terms of like. You know, literally telling people that you know, you know, you you shouldn't be here. This is an illegal protest, and it wasn't even a protest. It was literally, it was almost like a, you know, like a a spiritual gathering, really. Yeah, there's quite a few of these uh, events that have a bit of a spiritual edge. Like, you know, the people often think that the the kind of the freedom movement are, you know, a bunch of you know far right this that or the other, um, and that you know everyone's just like angry white men, etc. But like, I go to these things, and I'm like. 
you know, especially some of the protests that I've been to in London, it was like a hippie festival. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like yeah, everyone's yeah, exactly, wearing, wearing yeah, tie-dye yeah. and, and yeah. you know, going around playing playing steel yeah. drums and stuff. I'm like, it's yeah, just yeah. such a misrepresentation. I mean, yeah. yeah. And genuinely, genuinely, uh, you'll have noticed it as well, genuinely diverse. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, in, in a way Definitely. that, like, you know, things that are supposed to be diverse aren't, so... Yeah, I mean, you know, so I, I remember yeah. on some of these some of these um, marches in London, you would have like the uh, like the Sikhs tended to like be kind of like marching at the front, or sometimes you'd have like yeah, Harry yeah, Krishnas yeah. and stuff, and they'd like singing, and you know, people have got instruments, yeah, yeah. and then and then you've got like a bunch of other people who are behind, and there'd be people dancing. You'd have like there was absolutely no, it was completely a cross section of society. There was just as many, um, not just as many black people as white people, obviously, because you know we're a predominantly white country, but like. Um, yeah, there was, yeah. you know, a, a good was, mix, like, yeah, of, very good yeah, mix, a, yeah, a yeah. huge ethnic ethnic mix from across the board, and yeah, and, and then you you would see the the reports on. I mean, this was a big red pill for me. It was just seeing those reports about the protests. I was just like, our media is is completely lost the plot. I mean, it, it was just such obvious. Um, it was just such obvious misrepresentation. So um, I, yeah, the one that, yeah, because I was at one of those marches, and um, it was when that uh, the delightful Mariana Spring, the BBC's official misinformation correspondent kind of oh, came on God. the scene yeah. and um, she was tweeting like live tweeting this March with some of her BBC colleagues. And I screenshot quite a few of them because they were saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, about 10,000 or so anti-vaxxers. And I mean, it was like just the most grotesque misrepresentation, you know, I've ever seen, I think from a supposedly, you know, credible sort of media organization. Um, there must have been at least 300,000 people there that day. You know, it was in, I think it was yeah. the one in April or May last year. So literally, you know, 50 deep, five miles across central London, and they're calling it 10,000 people. I mean, you know, I go to sports matches, football and rugby and stuff with 10,000 people. So I know what 10,000 people looks like, and it doesn't look like that, I can tell you. Um, and, and, you know, and just the level of... Um, like willful misrepresentation and sort of almost, yeah. I think they almost, I got the sense they were literally trying to fabricate their own reality that, you know, kind of corresponded with their um, sort of political position on, on things. So, you know, they, they'd literally convinced themselves that it was 10,000, you know, right-wing anti-vaxxers, you know, um, when in reality it was 300,000, people predominantly protesting against civil liberties or protesting for, sorry, civil liberties and personal choice. Even, you know, most of the people I know, you know, they're not even anti-vaxxers. It's like, if you want it, fill your boots, you know, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm not going to persuade you not to have it. You know, all we'll say is do your research, make a decision that suits you. And, um, yeah. but don't, and, and, and for me, you know, again, the, the big red pill was like the levels of coercion, you know, I don't need to be coerced to look after my health. I do it every day, you know? Yeah. So when somebody's coercing me to take a product that actually I'm pretty sure I don't need and I'm making my life almost unlivable to take this particular product, <laughs> there's no way I'm going to be thinking, yeah, that's good for me. <laughs> um, and so it's just bizarre, you know, and, and I just, it's been staggering. I genuinely, I mean, I'm a bit like you, I suspect, you know, I've spent the last two years walking around shaking my head in disbelief because you just would not believe the things that you see on a daily basis. 
and, the, and particularly with the media. I mean, the media is like just, you know, it's Alice in Wonderland stuff, really, some of the crap they come up with. And, and yet but they believe it. They absolutely entirely invest in the narrative, it seems to me. Um, yeah, yeah. I think they, they they actually believe their own bullshit, don't they? I mean, this is something that's, yeah, I, I that, that's so. occurred to yeah. me. It's you know, it's not like Mariana Spring probably actually believes the kind of nonsense she spouts. She probably believes it. You know, she it's yeah. it's a form yeah. of self delusion. I mean, it's really funny. It's like I, I had a, I had an ex girlfriend who I'm, I'm quite happy talking about because she was a total uh, nutter, and um, you know, she kind of like did a lot of pretty crazy things and came up with some uh, some pretty you know unbelievable story shall we say not not to go into it too much but my conclusion after off the back of that relationship was like she actually believed this stuff that she was saying it was it was it wasn't just that she was a great actor it was like she'd kind of been able to self-delude um to to the point of of these of these uh, ideas and it's almost like the media is that kind of psychopath as well it's like they they these people who work in the media have self-deluded themselves to these conclusions they come to and then no matter what they see they will just apply their bias to it and then yeah. report it and put yeah. it all over the news. I mean, that that's kind of where we're at. I think so, yeah. I mean, it, that, ironically, that's where my, you know, the, the, the whole Yuri Bezmanov thing came from. It's yeah, I was going to ask you about that. My Twitter you, handle. Uh, yeah, can you go into that a bit? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I mean, that, like, Yuri, I don't know if you know much about Yuri Bezmanov. He, he, he was a, basically a, a KGB information officer. Um, in the sort of 60s and 70s, 1960s, 1970s, who, who defected to Canada, ironically. <laughs> That's an irony for you, given the state of Canada these days. Um, and um, he produced, well, it was a series of interviews that he did with a Canadian broadcaster with CBC in the sort of early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And um, yeah. I came across him about 10 years ago for the first time. And it was one, it was one of those kind of revelatory moments where it's like, oh, my God. This guy is literally telling us what's been happening for the last 30 years. Why isn't this on like, you know, headline news on, you know, BBC One sort of thing? Uh, well, I think we know why it isn't headline news on BBC One. But and so he he had spent his entire sort of career working for the you know KGB disinformation service effectively. So promoting misinformation to the West to basically undermine all of the Western institutions, the education system. And then, so he was actually one of the architects of it. And then he's, he had a, obviously a, a sort of a, a conversion, a Damascene conversion and uh, defected. And then he went on sort of public, you know, national TV, you know, multiple times trying to warn the West about what was going on, about how the West was literally destroying itself. Um, and he talk he talks about um um deep programming is the phrase he uses where and very much it's it's you know media led where people were just constantly bombarded from all sorts of different channels um this alternative reality um that becomes the accepted reality effectively and the, the point he made was that when you get to that point even if you put you know, rock solid empirical evidence in front of those people, they'll just ignore it. They, they literally will just ignore it. They'll just, you know, not accept it. And and um, even to the extent, and it's, it's been my experience where, you know, even things that you experience directly yourself, 
that are contrary to the narrative. People don't process it in the way that you would expect in that they literally just dismiss it. And it's a, it's a very fascinating, if you, you know, they're, they're all on YouTube. If you just go on YouTube and Google, you know, like search for Yuri Bezmanov, there's about five or six hours worth of interviews. It's, it's highly recommended. And it set me on this path of, um, you know, sort of, and I, I think actually it, it probably helped having seen those videos because you know what sort of disinformation and programming looks like you become sensitized to it. So, I, and the problem now is I see it everywhere. You know, pretty much every news broadcast now, I, I find unwatchable because unless it's like the football scores or something like that, every single bulletin carries an agenda. You know, you can, yeah. you can actually see where the editorial team have sort of got together pre, pre the bulletin and they've basically agreed, right, what is the agenda? What are we promoting in this particular bulletin? And it is so transparent once you sort of recognize it, you can't avoid it. So, yeah, so it, and the, the horrifying thing is like so much of what he spoke about has come true in the last 10 years, really. And, that you know, that this, I mean, this has been going on for sort of 30, 40 years. And you're now seeing the fruits of it where you've got a population that is so sort of desensitized, you know, almost they, they can't even see when they're being abused, which is, you know, I, I view most of this as abuse, frankly. And um, yeah, so very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I've seen a little bit of it, but I need to. Uh, I, I didn't realize it was six hours worth, so I ought to uh, go and check it out. I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. And that that that's kind of morphed itself into my Twitter account and this event I'm doing. And and I think it, it's to some extent. I think I've almost become my Twitter character. <laughs> it's quite funny. I think. I think my Twitter character is a much more accurate representation of me than my my real character these days because I can say the things I really want to say. Yeah, it's funny talking to you now and hearing your uh, your real voice because I never know what to expect. That there was part of me that's expecting to hear a Russian accent coming out and uh, <laughs> and you would, you would be the real Yuri. <laughs> not not some cockney <laughs> geezer. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I want to um, uh, talk about this event that you've got coming up because I know right, you're putting right. together a kind of a, an event for the for the free-minded. So, yeah, what's yep. it about? Yeah, essentially that. Yeah, it was really this was my sort of um, I, as I said earlier on. I'm, I'm, you know, there's only so much analysis you can do. You need to start thinking about right, what the hell we're going to do about it. And this was my sort of first contribution to it, really. So, it was a ten, It started out. The idea was just to have a social event, really, just to gather a few sort of like-minded people together. I mean, the thing that struck me, I've been very lucky. I've got a really good network locally, so I've never felt isolated or sort of, you know, and, um, you know, although we don't agree on all of it, I've not fallen out with my family, you know, so, um, That's good. you know, I've not had the sort of issues, but, you know, I know lots of people that have almost, you know, become entirely isolated, you know, their partners and family have almost disowned them. A good friend of mine, actually, good friend of mine, um, you know, has been effectively disowned by her family. Her daughter wow. won't speak to her. Um, you know, she won't let her see her grandchildren. Um, yeah, it's absolutely horrifying, really. And um, and um, that is so sad. So this this was sort of my response to trying to kind of you know bring people together, and and it it kind of got a bit out of hand, really, because then I thought, well, actually, let's try and do something a bit more interesting. Let's try and make it useful for people. Um, so I, I put a few calls out to different people that I knew and got some good responses. And so, you know, the idea was really to sort of 
on a sort of personal level, try and give people a few tools that they can adopt in terms of being more resilient on a personal basis. Yeah. Um, I'm a very, I'm, you know, I'm a very resilient person, but um, that's it's through a sort of a lifetime of hard knocks and, you know, but not everybody is. So, and some people, you know, need some, some help to become more resilient. And particularly if you've had a tough time in the last two years, you know, some people are pretty beaten up actually. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, had some amazing responses actually people that kind of came forward and said you know we really like the idea of this can we can we get involved and so i've had some amazing speakers have stepped forward to say well i'll come and do a bit on um you know sort of personal health how you can keep you know some of the things you can do to look after your health so that you basically avoid uh, as much as you can any contact with the health service which is ironic (laughs) um and then another guy um is going to do a presentation on sort of um, who's actually a behavioral psychologist. So he's going to do a presentation on basically how to recognize when you're being manipulated and nudged. Oh, wow. Um, And, um, and then I've got a couple of people, we're just going to do like a panel conversation about, you know, what next, what do we do? What do we do collectively to kind of try and, you know, get through build institutions or whatever. So, not quite sure how that bit's going to go really because I think we're all struggling a bit in terms of what the options are but um, so where is it taking place uh, it's in um, Kenilworth in uh, the Midlands so near Birmingham and you have you like rented out a hotel or some kind of event space yeah so we've got a big conference suite at um, it's the Holiday Inn in Kenilworth so we've got a conference suite um, fit about 120 people in there just um so at the moment, I've got about 100 going. So I've got room for about another 20 or so. So if anyone's listening to your podcast and they want to come along, follow my Twitter account and you can find the link on there to, to the booking link. Um, and um, so, yeah, hopefully. And, and, and it's quite interesting, actually, because there's quite a few people coming that um, I would guess probably half the people there, you know, have a network on Twitter, but they've never met in real life. Yeah. So for a lot of the people, this will be the first time they've met some of their sort of good Twitter friends, as it were, in real life. Um, so that should be fun. And um, and then, um, you know, hopefully there'll be a, a few of us will make some sort of, you know, slightly more, um, I suppose, um, productive contacts so that we can start doing things on a more sort of, um, um, you know, not professional level, but, you know, um, looking at, I mean, certainly there'll be people there from the Freedom Alliance, so that'll be a chance for them to promote the, the Freedom Alliance, you know, in terms of getting people in, interested in that and engaged in that, you know, as a, as a potential political option. And then, oh, um, yeah, so we'll, we'll see um, see where it goes, really. And then, uh, but it's, it's quite funny. So on the back of this, it's like, I, I think I've accepted now that I've kind of created brand Yuri Bezmanov yeah. <laughs> as a sort of a counterculture brand. Yeah, that's quite. It's but, great. Uh, I like I like the new uh, the new profile picture. It looks awesome. Right. Yeah. That was uh, that was well. That was one of the guys that has stepped up to help. Basically, who's uh, oh, nice. a graphic designer said, "I'll I'll knock you up some graphics," and he did that just off the cuff for me. So uh, yeah. So it's it's been quite very. It's been very life affirming actually. It's been really really fantastically positive experience. That I mean, I've done a few things in the past like this where I've done. I I used to do a bit of like promoting bands and things. Yeah. And um, if you've ever done a gig, it's a terrifying experience, trust me. You know, because first of all, you book the venue and you book the band. 
And first, you know, you hope the band turns up for one thing, because I've had a few near misses on that. But And then um, you just spend the next couple of months fretting about whether you're going to sell any tickets or not. And um, And people are so flaky, I find as well, you know, the number of people who say, yeah, 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 sounds fantastic. I would love to come. And then, you know, when, when it comes to spending 10 quid on a ticket, even just to go to see a band, they find 101 excuses why they can't go. And, um, right, right. and this is, you know, this is like, it's not cheap. It's 85 quid a ticket, um, which, you know, only it just covers the cost of the venue and the, because it includes dinner as well. So there's a dinner involved and, um, and a disco and a DJ afterwards. So, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's probably going to end up costing me a few quid, which is fine because I wasn't, you know, I was just doing it for fun really. And, um, but, um, but yeah, so I've sold 80 tickets already. So, and, uh, so there's actually only 20 tickets left to sell at the moment. Um, so well, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. It sounds, sounds like you'll end up booking it out. So that's great. Yeah. It's just awesome. Yeah. You know, the people are, people are doing stuff like this. I mean, so many people have stepped up to the plate in this community, I think of actually off the back of everything we've seen, just, just doing things, whether it's, you know, yeah. events or or some kind of citizen journalism or whatever it is. Like so many people have really yeah, just yeah. kind of stepped up to the plate. And, you know, I think that at the end of the day, it's like you can either kind of get buried by all this stuff or you can kind of grow through it. And I think that we're really starting to see people kind of rise up and, you know, self-actualize in a way. And, you know, um, yeah, I think yeah. th- this event is just another example of some great stuff that the community is doing. So congrats. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. One of the, one of the, th- I'm, I'm only, I'm not going to, do any speeches or anything, but I'm going to do like a quick five minute intro. And one of the things I shall be saying to people is that, look, the only reason this is happening is because I just decided to do it. It was as simple as that. I just thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. And that that's the sort of message is that you just got to go and do stuff. If you want to make things happen, you just got to go and make it happen. You know, because one of the things I've said right the way through this, there are no white knights, you know, there's nobody going to ride in and rescue us, you know, because I don't think, you know, we're, we're the good guys. You know, the good guys aren't the ones running the show. Um, you know, we're going to have to find a way of removing them and putting some good people in their place. Let's leave it there. Thanks so much, Yuri. No problem.